Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2014 San Antonio Gospel Truth Rally. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Hallelujah. Boy, God's just doing awesome things. You know, we got Teresa right here. She's one of our students. Wave at everybody. And Teresa was just healed, what was it, a year ago? March 13th of this year, and she was, I, she'd have to tell you all of this stuff, but she had so many things wrong with her that if she quit her medication, it was supposed to kill her. And she just believed God, and God healed, and man, she's totally healed. She was sharing her testimony with me just uh, yesterday, and it was, it was awesome. God's doing great, great things. And you know, you've heard all of these testimonies tonight, and... What God does for one person, He wants to do for everybody. God is no respecter of persons. And you know, there's a lot of people that say, well, yeah, I believe God can do this, but they just don't believe that God wants to do it for everybody. I'm telling you, God's will is for every one of you to prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. That's what 3 John chapter 1, verse 2 says. It's obvious that not everybody does prosper. It's obvious that not everybody does get healed, but it's not because it's God's will for that to happen. Not everybody gets saved either, and yet the Bible makes it very clear that he says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God's will is for everybody to be saved, but not everybody is because you have a choice. And there are people who want to be saved, who desire salvation, but they think that the way to get it is by joining a church and being a good person and signing a card. And there's people who are desiring salvation, but they don't have it because they don't understand. There's lots of reasons why God's will doesn't automatically come to pass. But I'm telling you, God wants to prosper every one of you. And so the testimonies that you've heard, how many testimonies have we heard tonight? Dozens. And there's so many more. God wants that for every person in here. He wants you to be living a supernatural life. If your life isn't supernatural, it's superficial. If you can explain things away and say, I did this, then you haven't tapped into God yet. I can guarantee you God will make you look good. God will do things beyond and above yourself. And I just want to encourage all of you tonight that God loves you and He wants to move supernaturally in your life. You know, it was just uh, a week ago Tuesday, I think that was the 4th of November, that God woke me up at 3.30 in the morning, and I mean, just spoke this to me as clearly as anything I've ever heard. And he said, he said to me, he says, the reason I raised you up is to change people's opinion of me. And as their opinion of me changes, their life will change, and then they will go and change the world. And man, I tell you, that was really powerful. And that's just about summing up what God's called me to do is God changed my opinion of God. Not that I didn't believe in God, but I believed in a God who was, um, he was capable, but he was unwilling to flow through people. It was all based on my performance and whether I lived holy enough and whether I did enough good things and the moment I started basing God's blessing in my life on my performance, then immediately uh, God's ability was lessened, not because he didn't have the power, but because I was never worthy of it. 
And it changed my life when I began to understand that God loved me because He is love, not because I'm lovely. And when I understood that and realized that God loved me and there's nothing I can do about it. I can't make God love me more and I can't make God love me less. When I understood that, my life began to dramatically change. And every good thing that has happened in my life has happened because of understanding the goodness of God and that God has a perfect plan for me. And if I'm not seeing it, it's not God who's not willing. It's, it's my own misunderstanding and condemnation and stuff that causes this. And so what I want to share with you tonight, let's turn over to Romans chapter 5. I want to share with you uh, some things that the Lord taught me many years ago. And this will help change your opinion of God. A lot of people have a wrong opinion of God and there's many reasons for that, but did you know one of them comes from scripture? And some people may be shocked and think, what are you saying? There's nothing wrong with scripture. I believe in scripture 100%. But religion has misinterpreted the law and why the law was given and what the purpose of the law was and the misunderstanding of why the Old Testament law was given has given a wrong impression to people about who God is. And you cannot have a relationship with God if you, if you aren't thinking properly about Him. The scripture says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And one of the reasons that people aren't seeing the supernatural power of God operate in their life is because they've got a misunderstanding of God through scripture, but not scripture that's not interpreted correctly. And I want to show you some things right here out of Romans chapter five. I wish I had time to teach this whole thing, but the book of Romans is a masterpiece on grace. How that God loves us completely independent of what we deserve. It doesn't have anything to do with your goodness. God loves us because he is love. And that's what the book of Romans is about. It uses examples in the fourth chapter of Abraham who, you know, if you were to take him out of the Bible and just have somebody live the way that Abraham lived today, most religious people would condemn him. I mean, he did a bunch of things wrong. Abraham did a lot wrong, but it's faith that pleases God. And when God made a promise to Abraham, Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, 6 says he counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham was righteous in right standing with God because of his belief, not because of his actions. Abraham did some really rotten things twice. He was willing to let a man take his wife and commit adultery with his wife to save his own neck. And anyway, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. He also used in the fourth chapter David and showed that David was a man who was mightily used to God. And the point that he's making here is that if you would pay attention, God has never had anybody qualified working for him yet. Abraham wasn't a really great man. David wasn't a great man. David committed adultery and murdered the husband of the woman he committed adultery with trying to hide his sin. David made some serious mistakes and yet David believed God and it was his faith that made him accepted with God, not his performance. Most religious people today would condemn David for committing adultery and murder. And yet Abraham, uh, David was one of the great men of the Old Testament, not because of his actions, but because of his faith. And that's the point that's trying to be made. 
And so he starts chapter 5 by saying, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The only way you can have peace in your relationship with God is by looking to what Jesus did for you and not basing God's goodness on your actions. And so that's real clear what it says. In verse 2, it says, we have access into this grace through faith. And then it talks about how that, you know, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, verse 8. And verse 9 says, much more being justified, now we will be saved. There's a lot of people that will accept that God will be good to you if you're lost, if you're a sinner. God loved the sinner. And they will minister mercy to a sinner and tell them that, you know, God loves you, but let that sinner get saved. And the same religious person will now condemn you for the things that you were doing before. You know, if a drunk came into the average church, most people would go up to the drunk and say, did you know that God loves you? Do you know that God has something better for your life? And you would administer mercy towards a drunk, but let the drunk get saved and then come back to church drunk again. And the same people who told them about how much God loved them will say, God's angry at you. God's going to judge you. You won't be blessed. The wrath of God's going to come upon you. That's the opposite of what Romans chapter 5 is saying. If I really believe that, well, then I'd tell you to stay lost so that God could love you. Amen. <laughs> it says much more now that we're saved does God love you. It, does that mean that you're supposed to still stay drunk and do these? No, because that damages you. It'll hurt you. We got Renee down here who was giving her testimony on the way over here and she was basically a drunk, cirrhosis of the liver, died, got born again while she was dead. That's quite a testimony. But you know what? God loved her. It wasn't that God hates you if you're drunk or if you've got something, but you are destroying your own body. There's multiple reasons to live holy, but it's not so that God can accept us. You're just stupid if you're living in sin. Sin is stupid. Sin will kill you. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is dumb. But I'm saying God loves you, dummy. <laughs> Amen? What's wrong is when people teach that if you do this, God can't love you. God won't bless you. God won't use a dirty vessel. I want you to know God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to use. We're just all in varying stages of being unworthy. This thing that you've got to somehow or another be worthy for God to use you is anti-Christ. It's anti-gospel. The good news is that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, and now that we have accepted him, much more does he love us. That's the background of everything that I'm reading. And then it jump down in chapter 5, and in verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You know, I haven't got time to explain this fully, but let me just mention that this is really contrary to what most people believe. Most people believe it's what you do that makes you unworthy, and therefore that's the reason God won't answer your prayer, won't use you, won't bless you, is because you've done this, this, and this. This says that death came into you through what one man did. Your sins did not make you a sinner. It was your sin nature that you were born with that made you sin. That's huge. 
And if it's a sin nature, then that means it's not your individual acts that's the problem. We were all born separated from God. Most people think that you were born in union with God, pure and holy, but that's not what the scripture teaches. It says by one man sin entered the world. And I'm not gonna have time to go through these verses, but at the end of this fifth chapter, there are five different times. It says by one man, Judgment came upon all, so by one man the free gift of righteousness, of salvation came upon all through Christ Jesus. Somebody says, well, that doesn't seem fair that I was made a sinner through what Adam did. Well, you may not think it's fair, but in the exact same way, it's not fair that you were made righteous through what one man did, amen? But because God set this system up this way, if you became a sinner through Adam, then you also become a saint through Jesus, not because of your goodness, but because you put faith in him, he just gives you his righteousness. Matter of fact, the last verse, or no, that's 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God, the father made Jesus who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God put all of your sin and my sin upon Jesus. And when you make Jesus your savior, you get made the righteousness of God. That's huge. That is huge. I was just in Uganda and I heard students over there testifying about, you know, in Uganda, they've had a real revival. You can't look in any direction without finding a Christian. All of the taxis in Kampala have hallelujah, glory to God, Jesus is Lord on it. I mean, there are multitudes of Christians, but they're all Pentecostal that are just zealous of the law and they are living under constant condemnation. They are trying to do something to earn and to please God. And Man, the testimonies that I heard about people finding out that they were righteous because of faith in Jesus and not because their performance, it is changing the lives of those people. They are just turned on and excited. We need that same message here. And so you became a sinner through what Adam did. And look in verse 13. It says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. That is one powerful scripture. Most people don't think a lot about this. You probably don't have this underlined in your Bible. But this is a powerful script. This is a pivotal scripture. You know, if you wanted to hang something on the wall, you can't just stick a picture on the wall. You have to put a nail or a screw or something there to be able to hold that thing. And this is one of those anchor points that so much truth in the, in the Bible hangs upon. If you don't understand this truth right here, it's gonna change your whole impression of the nature of God and who he is. This is saying that until the law, which was given through Moses over 2000 years after Adam and Eve fell, until the law, God was not imputing man's sins unto them. That's a big statement. The word impute is an accounting term. It means to record against you. Like when you give somebody your credit card, you don't pay for what you're getting. You just give them information that they can impute it unto you is what they're doing. And they, if you don't believe that, when your credit card statement comes, don't pay it and say, hey, I've already paid for it. I gave them my credit card. See how that goes, <laughs> amen. 
All you did when you give a credit card is you gave them the information so they could impute that sale unto you. And so this is saying that until the law came, God wasn't imputing. He wasn't holding men's sins against them. And then, I, I don't have time tonight, but if I had time, I could show you multitude of scriptures that when the law came, God started imputing, holding people's sins against them, judging them, punishing them, refusing to answer their prayers, etc., because of their sin. And most people have their image of God, their impression of who God is based on the Old Testament law and this system of do this and you'll be blessed, do this and you'll be cursed. And that's what most people have had their impression of God formed by. But think of this, the law was not given until 2,000 years after Adam and Eve's sin. There's a reason God waited 2,000 years because he did not want to deal with us according to our sins. He always wanted to be merciful unto us. Did you know that he could have told Adam and Eve how terrible they were? And yet all the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 is they saw that they were naked. Boy, that is minor compared to what really happened. You know, if the Lord would have only taken, just say the people here on the front row right here in this auditorium. And if he just went down the row and said, Adam, let me show you what your transgression has done. And if he showed the hurt and the pain and the death and the sickness and the broken relationships and all of these things that have happened to just these few people on the front row, I believe it would have killed Adam. He didn't show him any of that. He didn't know how bad it was. God didn't say, you filthy thing, and judge him. As a matter of fact, in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, you can find Cain and Abel, and they had a fight, and Cain killed his brother Abel, and God didn't approve of what he did. I'm not saying that God didn't, you know, turn the other direction and didn't look at sin, but he didn't judge. Cain. As a matter of fact, when Cain said, everybody who hears what I've done, they will come and they will kill me, God put a mark on him and he says, if anybody touches Cain, I'll avenge him sevenfold. God protected the first murderer. He didn't approve of the murderer, of the murder, but he protected him. He extended mercy towards him. Later, you can find in Leviticus that when a person murders, you've got to kill that person. Capital punishment was in, instituted by God. You can look in the 16th chapter, I think it's the 16th chapter of the book of Exodus, and when God gave the command about the Sabbath and how that you could, had to keep the Sabbath and you couldn't work, the very first person who violated the Sabbath went out and picked up sticks on the Sabbath day so that he could make a fire and cook some food. He broke the Sabbath. And so when that happened, they brought him to Moses and Moses, in a sense, put him in jail, uh, confined him until he could hear from God. And God spoke to him in an audible voice and said, kill him. Show him no mercy. Make an example out of him. Show people. Now think about this. Before the law, a person murders somebody and God extends mercy towards him. After the law, somebody picks up sticks to make a fire and God says, kill them. Man, how people don't recognize that there is a difference between grace and law. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4, verse 15, that the law works wrath. The law brings wrath. 
The wrath of God was revealed through the law. Prior to the law, for 2,000 years, God basically dealt with the human race in mercy because that was his heart. He could have told Adam and Eve how rotten they were, but he didn't. He extended mercy towards them. Did you know that Adam, I mean, uh, Abraham married his half-sister, the, the daughter of his father, but not the daughter of his mother? And in Leviticus chapter 18, I think it's verse 9, it says, if you marry a half-sister, you have to be put to death. If the law would have been in effect, Abraham would have been murdered. And then Jacob came along, and Jacob married Rachel and Lee, which Leviticus chapter 18 forbids you to marry two sisters while the other one was still alive. Jacob broke that. If he would have lived under the law, he would have been killed. And yet Abraham and Jacob both became patriarchs and some of the foundation of the nation of Israel. Jacob's was, name was changed to Israel. And he's the one that had the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And these people were blessed of God. If the law would have been given, God would have been judging them and punishing them instead of using them. Man, I don't know how we missed this, but there was a huge difference. There was mercy and grace towards people prior to the law that you don't see once the law was given. And yet most of us were raised under a law mentality that if you do this, God's judgment, punishment will come upon you. Unless you do this, this, and this, God won't bless you. That's a law mentality. And that was not the accurate representation of God. It's not, that it was, it was not that it was inaccurate, it was incomplete. The law is good. Let me tell you, I'm just trying to go through some things quickly here. I've got a tape series out there entitled The True Nature of God. I've got a book on it that will explain this in a lot more detail. But here's why God gave the law. Look over in Galatians chapter 3 and it says these exact same things. Galatians is another book that was really preaching the grace of God in chapter 1, he says, if anybody preaches anybody, anything else other than this grace of God, let him be accursed. Such a strong statement that I'm sure some people thought, oh, he couldn't have meant what he said. So he repeats it. He says again, I say, if anybody preaches another gospel unto you, let him be accursed. And man, it was just strong on the grace of God. And in chapter 3, he says... Um, in verse 19, after he'd been saying a lot of these same things that I've just been saying, he says, wherefore then serveth the law. In other words, if this is true, if the law released the wrath of God, if it did this, then why was it given? If it wasn't, see, most people think the law was given so that God could show us what we had to do to become acceptable, worthy to him so that he would accept us and move in our life. If that isn't, what it was done, if it was releasing the wrath and the punishment of God, well, then why did God give it? That's the question that he answered, asked. And it says, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So this shows you that it was added. In other words, it was not the first thing that God did. And again, I don't want to get too technical on you, but Go study this out on your own. Get the CDs, the tapes, the book, and learn this. But in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham, count the stars that are in the sky, count the grains of sand on the seashore, and if you can number them, so shall your seed be. And Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, 6, and it was accounted 
unto him for righteousness. That word accounted is the Old Testament equivalent of imputed. It was given, righteousness was given to Abraham, not based on his works, but based on the fact that he believed and trusted God. And Genesis 15, 6 was 430 years to the day before the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. And the law was given the next year. So it was 431 years after this covenant of faith was given to Abraham that the law was given. And that's what this is referring to. The covenant of faith where you just trust God and believe God and God counts it to you for righteousness, that was the first covenant. And the second covenant of the law was 431 years later. And it goes on to say down here in verse uh, 21, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness, should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Man, these are important things. This is saying that the first way that God dealt, the first covenant that God did was a covenant of just faith. Abraham was not a perfect man. He sinned greatly. It wasn't his holiness that earned him relationship with God. It was because he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And that covenant was in effect before the law was given. The law was an add-on, an addition and it says right here, it was only temporary until faith could come through Jesus. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the law. You are not to be living under the law. You don't need this concept of I've got to do this and this and this to be worthy and have God use me. You don't need this concept of if I've done this wrong, then that disqualifies me and how could God ever use me? And basically this is what religion is teaching today, that you've got to fulfill all of these things and become worthy. You know, many of you in here have heard me give a testimony about my son who was raised from the dead after being dead for four hours, over four hours, between four and five hours, stripped naked in a cooler, in a morgue, and God just raised him from the dead. And you know what, we gave a testimony, Valerie saw this little baby raised from the dead, Renee raised from the dead, Carly's daughter basically raised off of her deathbed. I bet you there's people in here that have seen people raised from the dead. And most of you believe those things. If you didn't believe that, you wouldn't be out here on a Thursday night listening to me. <laughs> this isn't your nod to God crowd. You're fanatics. Or you were drug here by a fanatic. Amen. You believe that God can do miracles. And if somebody fell over dead, if somebody fell over dead here tonight and I said, how many of you believe God can raise them from the dead? Boy, most of you would shout right along with the whole group. But you know where I'd lose most of you is I say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and pray. And all of a sudden, your faith turns to fear. Your excitement turns to dread. 
What happened? Did God change? No, but see, when I say you pray for them, we have this law mentality that I've got to be worthy. I've got to live up to a standard. God won't use me unless I'm holy. And that very thinking is what stops the power of God in your life because you are tying God's power and ability to your goodness. And I'm telling you, that is not the gospel. That is not what the Word of God teaches. That's what the law teaches. That law made you conscious of your sin. The law showed you all of the things you had to do to be right with God. And people have misunderstood the purpose of the law thinking, well, that's the way that God is. No, that's not what it was. He gave the covenant of faith and the law was added and it was only temporary until Jesus could come. We should not be living under a law mentality today. Somebody says, well, then why was the law given? That's what he's asking right here. Let me just condense this and summarize some things, make it as simple as I can. There's two main purposes of God giving the law. One of them was that when God says, thou shalt not, and somebody violated it, like picking up sticks on the Sabbath day, and God says, kill them. You know what? That forever put the fear of God in people. And the scripture says, Proverbs 16, 6, and many other places that the fear of God causes people to depart from sin. A fear of punishment limits the amount of sin that people do. But there's side effects to that. You know, it's like uh, if you ever watch these commercials on television, they'll say, if you got a headache, take this pill. And then they'll say, side effects might be death, <laughs> impotence. Man, I think, give me back my headache. I, man, the side effects will kill you. Well, the law accomplished a purpose. It did put fear in people, and the fear caused people not to go live in sin because fear of punishment. But it says over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, that fear has torment. Whoever fears is not made perfect in God. And most people are tormented in their relationship with God. They believe that God has power. They believe He has blessings, but they just don't feel worthy to receive it. And their whole relationship with God, they're frustrated and they're, they're discouraged. Not because they don't believe God can do it. They just feel unworthy. They've asked and they hadn't seen it. And that's one of the side effects of the law. The law had a side effect, and that is condemnation. I'm talking as fast as I can, and there's not a way in the world that I could cover all of this. But let me just mention real quickly, it says 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the law strengthened sin. The law didn't strengthen you, it strengthened sin. It says 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, the law was a ministration of death. 2 Corinthians 3, 9, the law was a ministration of condemnation. And the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation to those who are us in Christ. And yet there are people condemned because they are living under a law mentality, thinking they've got to do things to become worthy for God to love them and accept them. And that is where their condemnation comes from. You know, condemnation is a religious word that some people don't relate to, but when you condemn a building, what you're saying is it's unfit for use. And that's when you feel condemned. If you feel unfit for use, if you believe that I could raise somebody from the dead, but when I say you come do it, 
and you feel unfit for use, you lose your faith, you're condemned. You don't feel worthy. And that comes through the law. The law is what gave condemnation. It was called a ministry of condemnation. Romans chapter 3 verse 19 says the law gave the knowledge of sin and made you guilty. If you feel guilty, it's because you got a law mentality. Romans chapter 7 verse 9 says when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The law makes sin come alive and it kills you. And those are just a few of the verses of what the Bible says about the law. The law wasn't given to set you free. The law was given to condemn you, to kill you, to make sin come alive, to strengthen sin. Somebody's saying, why would God do that? Because sin had already beaten you and we didn't know it. It says 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but they comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves are not wise. People constantly compare themselves. Did you know back when I was a kid, man, homosexuality was terrible. We had homosexuals, but nobody bragged about it. Nobody had a parade. <laughs> nobody got on and came out of the closet and admitted it. They were ashamed of it. But now it's there, and because it is so prevalent now, people begin to think, well, it's okay because this rich person, this person who was a millionaire was a homosexual. This person who was an actor was a homosexual and they were famous and everybody, and all of a sudden people's standards change because they tend to compare themselves among themselves. You know what'll stop that? Is the wrath of God. Amen. You see the judgment of God. You see fire fall from heaven and turn somebody into ashes and all of a sudden it changes your perspective on what's right and wrong and, and you get to saying, whoops. Uh, you know, this is wrong. This is what, when God gave the law, it brought back our moral compass. It showed us this is what God says is right and wrong and it put fear in us and it diminished the amount of sin, but the sin you committed had much more control over you and condemnation over you. So it was, a, it was a blessing and a curse at the same time. You know, I was raised in a religious home. My brother and sister were raised in the same home, but I, I don't know. Uh, I just took things seriously. You know, I'm 65 years old. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. Some of you are thinking, coffee? You got a scripture for drinking coffee. It says in Mark 16, 18, you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you, amen. I'm just saying, you know what? I lived a holy life because I was afraid. I used to have a dream when I was a kid, at least twice a year, every six months, I'd have a dream that I had smoked a cigarette and that I got caught and they turned me into the police and the police turned me over to my mother, which was worse. And then I wound up in hell and I was burning in hell because I had smoked a cigarette. And I had that dream at least twice a year for 10 years. I'd go into a rest, uh, rest, restroom and I'd see profanity scribbled on the stall. And I'd spend two weeks asking God to forgive me for seeing it. I didn't write it. 
I just saw it, had the word pass through my brain and I would be condemned. I know some of you are thinking, boy, you were weird. I, I was. That's what religion will do to you. But you know what? I didn't use profanity. I didn't smoke. I didn't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. I lived a wholly separated life and yet I bet you I was more condemned and felt more wrath and rejection, fearful of God rejecting me than many of you that were out living immoral and doing all kinds of things. The law kept me from committing as much sin, but the sin I committed made me feel so unworthy that it just was killing me. And I, I was introverted and I always felt like I was so unworthy around people and stuff. And, and so that's one function of the law, but see, it had a negative effect. That is not the way that God wants to deal with it. That was a temporary way of God restraining sin until Jesus could come and redeem us and bring in the new covenant. If God hadn't have restrained sin, he had to judge the world and kill all but eight people because of the flood. People were living so immoral and so ungodly, it was like a cancer that was in the earth. And if God hadn't have done something to kill like cancer, there wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through. That's how bad the world was. And so even though somebody might look at that and say, well, that sounds to me like wrath. Well, it was wrath on those individuals, but on the human race as a whole, it was like cutting off a limb. It was like cutting out a cancer. It was mercy towards the human race as a whole to purge them to purge us of this evil, but it was tremendous wrath on those people. And, and it was so bad back then. Jesus said that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. We don't know for sure that we're in the second coming yet, but we're getting close. I know 2,000 years ago, Peter said it's the last days and interpreting if 2,000 years ago was the last days, we're in the last day of the last days. I don't know if this is the last generation, but it's my last generation, amen. I'm working, doing everything I can. So anyway, my point is that here we are 4,000 years after the flood and things are just now beginning to get as bad as they were. In 1626 years, it got from Adam to the flood and it was so corrupt that when God judged the earth and cut that out and then he brought the law, it restrained sin. There hasn't been as much sin. The human race has not gotten as bad as it was before because of the uh, fear effect of the law. So it did accomplish something. You could be like me. You could be raised under the law and it will keep you from committing as much sin, but the law brought condemnation and the sin you commit now is much more, it's much worse. Romans chapter seven, that's by the law, sin became exceedingly sinful. And so that's one effect of the law and it had a purpose, but it had a side effect. The number one reason I believe that God gave the law was not so that you could keep it and thereby become worthy and accepted with God. Nobody has ever kept the law except Jesus. And the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. 
Even though I haven't done some of the things that some of you have done, I've sinned. And I've come short, and because of it, I'm guilty of homosexuality, adultery, murder, lying, stealing. The law was like one standard. It's like if you had a huge glass that ran across this auditorium in between me and you. It wouldn't matter if you shot a BB through the glass or if you drive a truck through the glass. If you break it, the whole thing has to be replaced. If you have lived a relatively holy life, and yet if you've been proud, if you've gossiped, if you've done anything, you've broken it and you become guilty of all. But see, people didn't understand that. And they thought, well, because I'm better than this person over here, God's going to accept me. And they were thinking that they didn't need a Savior. I'm really good. I, God owes me salvation. And so God had to break this deception. And one of the ways he did it was by giving the law. And he says, you think you're holy? You think that because you haven't murdered somebody like this person did, because you haven't stole, that somehow or another you are worthy? Let me show you my standard. Here is the minimum requirement. And God gave a law that was impossible to keep. The law wasn't given so that you could keep it and thereby become worthy and accepted with God. The law was given to show you you can never keep it. It was, to give, it was given to make you despair of self-righteousness, self-salvation, and to just condemn you, kill you, make sin come alive and do all of these things that I was quoting those scriptures about. The purpose of the law was to beat you down and to make you feel unworthy so that you would quit promoting yourself and your goodness and instead you would throw yourself on the mercy of God. You know, I heard a story about a guy who died and went to heaven and Peter met him at the gate. And uh, he says, all right, I'm gonna give you a quiz to see whether you can get in. He says, you gotta make 100 points on this test. And the guy said, no problem. I was a Christian. I lived a great life. And he says, fire, you know, start. So the first question was, did you go to church? He said, oh, I never missed church. And he showed him his attendance pen. He had a perfect attendance pen for years. And he said, man, I was always at church. He says, good, that's worth one half of a point. And he says, half of a point. And he said, next question, were you faithful to your wife? Oh, yeah, I was faithful to my wife. I never committed adultery. I honored her. And he says, that's worth one point. And anyway, after four or five questions, he was up to two points. <laughs> and he says, my God, if I have to have 100 points, oh, God, have mercy on me. And Peter says, come right on in. <laughs> and see, that's the purpose of the law for the people who are thinking, man, I'm really good. You could, you could trust me. I got it covered. God says, you think you're good? You think I owe you salvation? Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not. And God gave standards that nobody could ever keep. The law was never given so that you could keep it and earn relationship with God. It was given to reveal your inability to ever be holy with God based on your actions. And if you use the law like that, then it's okay. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I believe it's verse uh, 7, 8, 9 right there, it says that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, for the disobedient, for people who do all of these things. You become righteous when you get born again. The law isn't made for a born again person. The law is made to show you your sin so that you would quit trusting yourself 
and throw yourself on the mercy of God. And if you would use the law like that, then it's okay. But what's wrong is religion has used the law to say this is what you have to do to be accepted with God, to get God to move in your life. And it has made us sin conscious. It's made us unworthy conscious. It's made us feel like, oh God, I know you have the power, but I doubt that you would use it on my behalf. This is what's given rise to the superstar status of certain people where, you know, you think that somebody just has a corner on God and God won't answer your prayers, but maybe if you'll come and let me lay hands on you, then God will somehow or another flow through me. That's wrong. That's wrong, brothers and sisters. Man, that's, that's because of this religious mentality of you gotta earn, you gotta do something. If you knew me as well as you know you, you wouldn't have any more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers. <laughs> the only reason some people think that I got a corner on God is because you just don't know me. Ask my brother and sister down here, amen. <laughs> this is the reason that lots of times when God does something in your life, other people just see the power of God, but your own family, they're the ones that changed your diapers when you were a kid. You saw your runny nose, and you know what? They don't feel the same about you as everybody else and stuff. But we put people into these categories where they're a superstar or something. I'm telling you, it is not based on your goodness, what you do, it's all based on Jesus. And it, once you understand this, it really sets you free. Because I tell you, I have tried to live a holy life. I study the Word. I pray more than most people in here. That's not a, I'm not saying that in a proud way. I'm just saying that I seek the Lord. I study. I do all of these things. And yet God doesn't answer my prayers because I deserve anything. It, this revelation of the grace of God has set me free from myself and from condemnation because now I know it's not based on what I do. When I pray for people, I pray for them in the name of Jesus, not in the name of Andrew Womack. I pray for them in the name of Jesus. You know, one time I was going over to a Bible study to minister, and this was when I was in Pritchett, Colorado. We had seen a man raised from the dead, and I had people coming by day and night asking me for prayer and doing things, and I was so busy that it had been days since I had studied since I had prayed except for other people. And I just realized you can't give out all of the time. You need to also fill yourself up. So I made a commitment that I was going to spend that whole day before this Bible study fasting and praying and studying the Word. And somebody came over at like 4 in the morning or something and woke me up and needed prayer. And so I started praying, but it was praying for people. The only time I opened my Bible all day long was to minister to people. I had a steady stream of people coming by my house. I didn't even have time to do anything else. And I'd made a commitment to fast. And a man came by that day who I'd been witnessing to, and he wanted to take me out to lunch. And I thought, man, today could be the day that this guy gets born again. He wouldn't understand me fasting, so I decided to go out with him. And I didn't eat breakfast, so I was hungry, and I ate twice as much for lunch as I normally did. <laughs> so as I was driving over to this Bible study, I was feeling so condemned, like, oh, God, how could you ever use me? I didn't open my Bible except to quote it to other people. I didn't pray except to pray for other people and I ate twice as much as I normally did. 
And as I was driving over there, I felt so condemned and I had scriptures coming to my memory. You know, the devil can quote scripture. I believe the devil has quoted, uh, translated some Bibles. <laughs> and the de I was having scriptures come that says, that, you know, all liars will have their part in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. It's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not pay. And man, I was feeling so condemned. And as I was, I was driving 45 minutes to this Bible study and as I was getting closer, I was saying, oh God, I know I'm not worthy, but you know, just do it because you love the people. Speak through me and touch them because you love the people. And I still didn't feel any faith or any release. And so I, was, I just kept praying. And finally I said, oh God, just do it because of Jesus. And as soon as I said that, the Lord spoke to me and said, who did you think I was gonna do it because of? <laughs> and you know what? I had fallen back into the thing of thinking that if I would fast and if I would pray and if I would be holy, God would use me. That's not true. And now that I've got a lot more understanding, I still am learning all this, but I've got a better understanding. Now when the devil comes and condemns me, the Bible says agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way. And you know, I used to, he'd come and he says, you aren't worthy. What makes you think God had ever used you? And I'd say, look, I've been fasting, I've been praying, I'm doing better than I ever have. And I'd start trying to somehow or another justify myself. The moment you do that, you lose because Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He will keep probing until he'll find something you haven't done or something that you have done that was wrong. You will lose every time that your faith is in yourself. But I have learned just to agree with my adversary and say, you know what? You're right. <laughs> I don't deserve a thing. I think I'll just tell them about Jesus. I think I'll pray in the name of Jesus. I'm going to rely upon Jesus and not on myself. And it has set me free from condemnation. I don't deserve the good things that God's doing in my life. I don't deserve God's blessings. Man, it has set me free. But people who have this thing about the law and that I've got to do these things to be worthy, you may not phrase it this way, but what you're doing, your faith is in what you do for Jesus and not what Jesus did for you. And that's where Satan gets us. He can't accuse God. God is without accusation. He's perfect. He's complete. It's us. It's us that he accuses. He says, sure, God can do it, but he wouldn't do it for you. When Peter walked on the water, he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to see the wind and the waves boisterous around him and he was afraid and began to sink. What was he afraid of? It wasn't, he didn't doubt that Jesus could walk on the water. He didn't all of a sudden say, you know what, this is wrong. This couldn't be Jesus. I don't believe Jesus is walking on the water. He didn't doubt Jesus' ability to walk on the water. He doubted his ability. He took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking at natural things and just looking at things from a human standpoint. And he began to sink. And he still believed Jesus could walk on the water because he called out to Jesus for help instead of calling to the guys in the boat. He believed Jesus could do it. He was doubting his ability to do it. You've got to recognize that it's not based on your ability, that it's not your, what you do. It's all about Jesus. 
And if you could really understand this and recognize that Jesus set us free from this law of trying to be good enough, it was never given to, so that you could be good enough. It was given to make you quit looking at yourself and quit trying to earn the favor of God and just throw yourself on the mercy of God. Once you understand that, then you are able to just rest in the Lord and when Satan condemns you, it's just like water off a duck's back because after all, it's not about you. It's not about what you did. It's all about Jesus. Do you recognize that Christianity is the only religion on the planet that has a savior? No other religion has that concept. Every other religion believes that there is some God or gods but basically they preach that you've got to do this, this, and this in order to appease that God and to earn His favor. But true Christianity differs from all other religions in the fact that it's not about what you do. You don't make yourself worthy. You don't earn God's favor. We have a Savior. And you put faith in a Savior and you are now accepted with God through what Jesus did for you, not what you do for Jesus. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, what I'm saying right here is as rare as hen's teeth in the religious realm. This is not what the average church is preaching. I'm not against church. We got a lot of ministers here. I believe in church. I believe that that's God's method here on the earth, but I'm saying that there is a lot of religious bondage and stuff that has crept into the church and they aren't preaching and putting people's faith in Jesus. They are making people conscious of their sin and trying to earn the favor of God. And I tell you, it, if you understand what I'm talking about tonight, this won't set you free to sin, but it'll set you free from sin. You will understand how great it is that what God did for us, that out of love, you will serve God more accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. That's what it'll cause to happen. Amen. You know, when God brought grace, it's not that he just all of a sudden quit imputing sin unto us. You know, I could take other scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, that we are reconciled unto God because he did not impute our sins unto us. Remember Romans 5, 13, that the law imputed sin unto us, but now Christ is not imputing sin unto us. How did he do that? Is it just that God decided all of a sudden, all right, I'm not going to hold sin against people anymore? No, sin had to be paid for. Sin was a transgression and it had to be paid. There was a debt that sin caused and God didn't just look the other way and say, all right, I'm changing and now I'm not going to punish people. I'm not going to strike them with leprosy. I'm not going to do what I did in the Old Testament. No, he paid for that sin. This is why Jesus had to come. Jesus became a man and he was called the Lamb of God. In the Old Testament, God allowed people to sacrifice animals because it says that sin, in the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And sin was punishable by death. In the Old Testament, he allowed them to offer an animal and kill that animal to substitute for their own blood. 
But it says in Hebrews chapter 9 that no blood of an animal could ever really save us. It was only symbolic. It was a picture, a type. But Jesus was the real deal. He was the Lamb of God. And God put all of His wrath for your sin and my sin upon Jesus. And Jesus paid for the sins of the entire world. Jesus was so holy and so pure that one drop of His blood was worth more than all of the sin of the human race for all time. That's huge. And He paid more than the debt required. It would be like me going to pay for something that cost $100 and somebody just walks up and says, here's a million dollars, will that cover it? <laughs> Absolutely. Whatever sin did against God, God didn't just look the other way. God paid for your sin and my sin by punishing Jesus. And for you to still suffer rejection and separation because, you know, I, I've made Jesus my Lord, but I'm not living the way I should. I'm not holy the way I should. I still got problems in my life. How could God ever use me? You're saying that Jesus didn't pay enough, that you've also got to pay. That would be like me going to pay for something. Somebody says, a million dollars, is that enough? And then I say, but you know what? I got the thing. I should pay something. And so you go ahead and give 50%, 20%. That's just stupid. Why would you pay anything? If somebody more than paid for what you've already got, why do you feel that you have to pay for it too? And yet Christians are feeling like that, oh yeah, Jesus forgave me. I believe if I die, I'm going to heaven. But you know what? I'm just so unworthy and... How could God ever use me? You aren't understanding that Jesus paid it all. You think he paid just a portion. If you understand what I'm trying to say and understand the goodness of God, how much he loved you, that he punished Jesus and Jesus literally suffered and suffered the wrath and the rejection of God. If you understand that, and understand how this benefits you, it would make you love God so much that you would live holier than you've ever lived before. You know, again, I say thank God that He showed me these things, that He's revealed the gospel to me and that, it's, and that He's called me to preach it, not only because I'm blessed by it myself, but people who sit there and say, you preach grace so that you can just go live in sin. You can't use that against me. I'm living holier than most of you in here. Grace hasn't caused me to go live in sin. It hasn't made me. Man, the love of God has caused me to serve God and commit my life to Him. People who say stuff like that have never gotten a revelation of how much God loves you. Amen. And I can tell you of hundreds, thousands of people who've given testimony to me of the exact same thing. We had a guy, Jimmy, here today. I don't know if he's here tonight, but he, here's Jimmy over here. He testified about how he was legalistic and condemning people, and he heard and got this revelation, and man, now he is just in love with God. He's going to go out and plant a church, and he's serving God more than he ever has. Understanding the goodness of God and the grace of God does not make you go live in sin. People say, well, you're just giving a license to people to sin. People are sinning pretty good without a license, amen. <laughs> this doesn't give a license to sin. This sets you free from sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 15 
says the law shall, I mean, sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under the law, but under grace. If you are living under law, that guilt and condemnation that the law brings makes you impotent. It takes away your strength and power, and you wind up sinning more when you are going around focused on your sin and your unworthiness. You sin more that way than you do when you understand how much God loves you and what He's done for you and the goodness of God. It sets you free from sin. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, God loves you more than you could ever understand. And a revelation of God's love for you is what will turn your life around and point it in the right direction. The fear of God may cause you not to do certain things, but it will bring with it guilt, condemnation. The side effects will kill you. But the love of God will cause you to serve God without any side effects. The only side effect will be joy and peace and happiness and all of those good things. I believe that, praise God, if you could change your opinion of who God is and how He loves you and why He gave the law and things like this, that that would change your life and then you in turn would go and change the lives of other people and you'd see awesome things happen. Amen? Amen. So praise God. I believe that I've sown some seed in your life tonight and if you've got questions, you know, if you've listened to what I've said and don't have questions, you didn't pay attention. Because I have countered a tremendous amount of religious doctrine and I didn't have time to explain everything and I can guarantee you that if you were paying attention, you should have questions. But I've got thousands of hours of teaching on that stuff out there and I encourage you to get it and study the Word and find out how good God is. It will transform your life. Amen? Amen. It'll make you a happy person. Like Daniel was saying, we're happy around Bible college because people are finding out how good God is. And it just, man, it sets people free. Wished you could come and be with us and hear all of these testimonies of people's lives that are changed. Father, I thank you for these truths that I've talked about tonight. And I just praise you, Father, that this is true. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open up people's hearts and let them understand your goodness, your grace, Understand why you gave the law, why there was a period of time that you released your wrath. But thank you, Father, that now you've placed your wrath upon Jesus. He's paid for our sins and that there is no wrath reserved for us, that you'll never be angry with us nor rebuke us again. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, I believe that your Holy Spirit just sets people free with this truth. For all of the guilt and the condemnation, the feelings of unworthiness that have hindered people from receiving your love and goodness, I believe that the truth has set them free and that people, that, that condemnation and guilt is broken over people tonight. Thank you, Father. We believe for a change in people's hearts and we receive that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 
800-880-80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.